This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. All right, fair warning. A uh, long sermon. On, on purpose. Uh, sometimes we have them around here and they're an accident. But just like insurance, changing your oil, oil filter, working out and getting an annual physical checkup, you're getting the best deal. Because I'm going to preach you three sermons in one. And this could have been three 30 to 40 minute sermons, but instead it's going to be one, I hope, 40 minute sermon. So do you remember that old, uh, some of you are not old enough for this, but there was an old uh, commercial, a car commercial for Fram oil filters that said, pay me now or pay me later. Point was, if you don't change your oil filter at a few dollars, you will have to change your engine at quite a few. And uh, I would say the same thing to you this morning, a long sermon on purpose, pay me now or pay me later. Unfortunately, I have to come back next week for another 30-minute sermon, but that's neither here nor there. Not uh, doing real well so far today on communicating complex things, trying to explain daylight savings time to my five-year-old who could not comprehend why the clock said five and he was sure that it was six, and which is when he can get up. And so let's hope that, um, that I can do better in this sermon. Uh, we're going to be in rounds five through seven this morning. Um, if you've been with us, you know that we're walking through the gospel of Mark together, and we're in that section of Mark's gospel where Jesus is fighting with the religious leaders. Uh, the end of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12 is a round-by-round heavyweight fight between the religious leaders of Jesus's day and Jesus. It's, it's a heavyweight fight between religion and the gospel. And so throughout the last four weeks, I took a week a time to explain each round. Round one, as you recall, uh, was the Sadducees. Uh, I'm sorry, the Sanhedrin, uh, the, ch- the scribes and the chief priests and the, and, and the elders. And they come to Jesus after he cleansed the temple. And they said, who do you think you are and what are you doing? And uh, that was round one. Round one did not score so well uh, for the Sanhedrin. As you might recall, they went away with the crowds more in love with Jesus than when they came. And so then the Sanhedrin sent the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they said, round two will be us trying to trap you in a conversation about taxes. And as you recall, it says at the end of that round, everyone marveled at Jesus because of his brilliance and his persona, even the Pharisees and the Herodians. So round two, Jesus. Round three, as you will recall, um, as the religious elites of his day are looking bloodied and tired, Uh, Round three was um, the Sadducees, who don't believe in resurrection, coming to Jesus and trying to get him to look silly, talking about marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. And as round three was drawing to a close, the scribe that was supposed to be round four got there a little early, and his intent was to trap Jesus. But watching Jesus answer the Sadducees so well, it says that the scribe said he is answering well or rightly or beautifully, and he actually has a real conversation with Jesus. And in that conversation, at the end of it, when they're talking about how to get into the new heavens and the new earth, talking about how to obtain eternal life, how to live life now, the scribe says, who has been teaching in the land, if we'll just obey the law well enough, the Messiah will come and he will deliver us. And at the end of understanding the law from Jesus's perspective, the scribe says, I'm a long way away from that. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're not far from the kingdom. Because, of course, the first part of getting into the kingdom is repentance, which is, I'm a long way away from that. The second half of that same coin is faith. I enter in by his sheer grace and call and sacrifice. And so four rounds, 
a bloodied religious elite, from all appearances, a very victorious Jesus. But, (laughs) unlike the southern, polite, good sportsmanship that I was taught growing up, and of course I say that tongue-in-cheek, Jesus won't let them tap out. If you're not familiar with UFC or all the other different types of martial arts fighting, there's a way for you to submit and surrender in a fight and tap out, and your opponent is supposed to let you go. If you're as old as me or maybe a little older, it's the old proverbial throwing in the towel. Jesus won't let them tap out. It says, in fact, in verse 34, after round four, no one dared to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Jesus has won. They're done, but he won't let it go. Let that explode the nice little box we've put Jesus in. So rounds five through seven, all that we're going to cover today, they're all Jesus on the attack. You see, rounds one through four could be characterized by judo. Judo is that martial art where you use the other person's attack on you, their energy and aggression towards you. You use it against them by making them go farther than they wanted to. But today, Jesus is on the prowl. Now, this is really important. He's around people that don't believe. He's around his enemies. And when he has the chance to set the agenda, these are the three things he wants to talk about. It's really important for us to understand who Jesus is, not just by how he responds to interrogation, but what he does when he gets the floor. That's what today's sermon is all about. So while we could have broken all three of these out into three different sermons, I thought that it would make more sense to zoom out a little bit and think about the fact that all three of these are at least connected by this idea that this is a proactive pursuing Jesus, delivering the knockout punch to the religious elites. But I think there's a, there's a deeper connection that just goes beyond a proactive Jesus. And we're going to look at this text through three points. Jesus is going to say something about himself as Messiah, verses 35 through 37. He's going to say something about the scribes as the condemned, verses 38 through 40. And he's going to say something about the widow as the model. And just so you know, in advance, that will be continued education for his disciples and us. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would enable and empower and equip me to teach your people today. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is still trying to decide what they understand and know and believe. I pray that you would continue to work on their hearts, showing them your beauty and your grace and your life. Lord, I ask that anything I say today that is not from you, that you will strike it. You would give me the humility and the awareness right away to realize that it's not from you and to declare it. But I pray that what is from you would be sunk deep into our hearts and radically change us to becoming more like our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So Jesus saying something about himself as Messiah, round five. Let's go to the text. Let me give you the major idea really quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I will come back to it and the crucial nature of it at communion. But for now, pick up with me in verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple, right smack dab in the middle, in the heart of Israel, in the seat of the Sanhedrin's authority. And he said, how or in what sense can the scribes say that the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, How can they say that he's the son of David? 
Now, this is a really rare, uh, strange question, just so you know. If you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you should know that every prophet of the Old Testament said that there was going to be a Messiah. There's going to be a Christos. There's going to be one who would come and put everything right in Israel that would restore and renew and redeem and recreate everything. And not only that, almost all the prophets who said there's going to be a, a Messiah to come to do all this, almost all of them said that this Messiah would be in the loins or the lineage or the son of David, David being one of the great kings in Israel's history. So not only do the prophets tell us there's going to be a Messiah to come and that he's going to be David's son, the reason that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and others tell us to look for the great son of David is because, well, Jesus or God promised such to David in 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God comes to David and says to him, in covenant, last week we looked at the covenant with Abraham, with, uh, with Ray Cortez. This week, I'm reminding you of the covenant he made with David, where he, he made this amazing promise to David, and some of it is obviously about Solomon, who is his son, who is the third king in Israel's history, but some of it was obviously not about Solomon. Like, the parts about Sol- Solomon would be stuff like, okay, this is what I'm going to do for your son. I'm going to establish his kingdom and his throne. He's going to build me a temple. I don't want you to because you've been a warrior. And he says, God says to David, I promise to treat your son like my son, that when particularly he's living in iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod because that's what dads do. But not only that, um, he says to David things that can't possibly be about Solomon, like your son will sit on an everlasting throne in an everlasting kingdom. And so the reason the prophets were looking for this proverbial son of David as the Messiah is because God said that that's exactly what's going to happen. And of course, you all know, if you're familiar with the New Testament, it picks up on this idea. It's shot throughout our New Testament that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew and Luke both give very detailed lineages for Jesus, genealogies for him, and each of them draw really specific attention to him being the son of David. And so, verse 36, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so here in verse 36, Jesus is quoting David, the one to whom God made that promise. And when God made that promise to him, David wrote Psalm 110 in response to God's promise. And Jesus says, listen, If when God made a promise to David that his son would sit on the throne as the Messiah, why did David call this one, this great figure, this Messiah, why did he call him my Lord? In other words, by the way, Psalm 110, in case you're interested, is the most frequently quoted and alluded to Old Testament text in the New, 33 times. It's like one of the biggest verses in the Old Testament from the New Testament's perspective. And so Jesus says to them, well, of course he's David's son. Everyone knows that. But what does David mean when he says the Lord, Yahweh, the Old Testament covenant name of God, what does God mean when he says, David mean when he says the Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord, Adonai, master, owner, ultimate authority. If he was only foreseeing his son or his son in quotes from his loins in his lineage down the road, he would say the Lord said to my son, sit at my right hand while I put our enemies under your foot. And he's like, why in the world? Here's the question. How can he both be David's son and David's Lord? And here's the answer to the question. Here's the bottom line. He can only be David's son 
and David's Lord if he's also God's son. The scribes wanted to box in the Messiah. They wanted to squeeze him into their agenda. They wanted David's son only. They wanted him to come after them and be younger than them. And they wanted the Messiah to defeat the Romans, their enemy. And they wanted the Messiah to help them keep their place of honor, keep their place of respect, keep their place of homage. But Jesus says, I am David's son, but I'm also God's son. And therefore, Jesus deserves all respect, all honor, all praise, all worship, all loyalty, all submission. He says, not only that, your enemy is way too small. You'd like to see Rome get kicked out of Jerusalem, but I have come to conquer the Father's global, eternal, not eternal, that was wrong, global, long-standing enemy, Satan, sin, and death. And so as we close up number one, that's the first round, round five, first sermon's over. Jesus is saying something about himself as Messiah. He said, why would the scribes, we should ask ourselves, why would the scribes want the son of David only and not also the son of God? And the answer is because they liked being the scribes. Round six, Jesus saying something about the scribes as condemned. Pick up verse 38. And in his teaching, that wasn't enough to let the crowds know that the scribes were wrong theologically. He also wants to let them know, the crowds, the throng, those gathered, that the scribes are wrong morally as well. And so he kept teaching, beware of the scribes. Now, just a reminder from last week, the scribes, they are also called lawyers and, and experts in the law and teachers of the law and other place in scripture. And the reason is, is because they started out as a group of men, as those who would copy the Torah. They would copy the law so that multiple copies could be found in the land. But because they copied it, they began to understand it really well. And so people would ask them to teach the law to them, ask them to interpret the law to them because they knew all of the law. And not only that, in time, in Jesus's time, the scribes were like little judges. People would come to them with a dispute and they would say to them, what's the verdict? And sort of like a mediator, the scribe would come down with a verdict that both parties were bound by. There was no one else in all of Israel that had the authority, the respect, the honor, and the homage of a scribe. And Jesus says, beware, watch out, look out for, be on the guard against these with all the authority. They had long distinguished robes. They paraded their position by wearing these long white robes with these four unique tassels at the bottom so you knew for sure who they were. They would leave all the colorful robes for the masses. Jesus says they have the greetings in the marketplace when a scribe walked by on the street or in the market, people were required to rise and respectfully greet them. In deference, they greeted them with the titles of father, rabbi, and instructor. Sound familiar from this week in City Bible Reading, Matthew 23? Only tradesmen who were at work, who would put other lives at risk, were allowed to not rise and respectfully greet them when they saw them. 
Not only that, the scribes, the ones that Jesus is saying watch out for, they have all the best seats in the synagogue. The synagogue um, was this place like, like a church, sort of, where as the, the Israelites were scattered through the land because of exile, they would set up these places of worship, and it was usually just a large room. But in that large room, there was really only two pieces of furniture. There was a treasure chest-looking um, um, box that held the Torah in it and was locked for safekeeping. And, and then there was one bench. There was a chief seat. And on that one bench, the scribe would pull his seat out and the people would sit on the ground in submission and surrender to him. And he would sit on that seat with a Torah behind him. And he would basically say to them, I am your mediator. I'm the mediator between you and that. You can't get by without me. Not only that, they had the places of honor at parties. Whenever a feast was thrown by a prominent man, the scribes were like the ornament at the feast. It was like, you know, the star at the top of the Christmas tree. They would be placed in the chief place, even ahead of the elderly. And so you say, well, what's the problem here? Somebody has to sit there. Someone has to have authority. Someone has to lead. Someone has to get, have the gift of teaching. Someone has to do what they're doing. And Jesus says, here's the problem. This is why you should beware Look in verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And you can imply they like having the best seats in the synagogue and they like having the places of honor at the feasts. They were self-intoxicated. They loved the deference and praise of men. They loved that people were forced to notice their comings and goings. Their proverbial stomachs were fed when the commoner tipped their hat at them. And Jesus says, beware. And I want us to just take note of what he says to beware of. Not, real, not, um, not tax collectors, not prostitutes, not sinners, not drunks, not Romans. But watch out for the men who teach you the Bible. Anybody want to trade places? <laughs> Watch out. Be on the lookout. Some of them are wolves and not shepherds. They lead you for selfish gain and not your good. And then he goes on. This is why he says beware. He's not saying watch out, don't be a teacher. He's not saying don't ascribe to be a scribe. He's saying watch out, and this is why. 40. They devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, for appearance' sake, they make long prayers. This is what Jesus is saying. The ones who are teaching you about the kingdom, the ones who are telling you how to get into the kingdom, the ones who say they're trying to lead you into eternal life, this is what you need to know about most of them. They're willing to put you to death in order to have the life they want. Literally, scribes were of the poorest class, and they did this for themselves so that they could live off the hospitality of the Jews. So just like raising and tipping your hat and greeting them with an honorific title, you also had to give them whatever they needed to live. And the scribes were famous for going into old widows' houses and sponging up all they had in the name of religion. Keep reading. This is for those of us who have gone to seminary 
are in seminary, for those of us who aspire to lead and teach in a small group, for those of us who do teach in a small group, this is for us. They will receive the greater condemnation. Literally abundant, overflowing judgment. I want to remind you, whether it be Ezekiel 34 or James 3, anyone who aspires to teach must remember that they will be judged with greater strictness than all the rest. In Jesus' kingdom, the greatest is the last. And the chief leaders are the ones who will serve anybody. So the bell has rung on round six. Look, we're two sermons in. This is great. Let's review. The proactive pursuing, attacking Jesus has three things to say in his public ministry before he brings it to a close. The scribes are wrong theologically about him. He is both David's son and God's son. The scribes are wrong in in terms of morality. They, They like, they wish, they want. They live for the respect, homage, and submission of others. Round seven, Jesus is gonna show his 12 and those of us who claim to follow him a little something about discipleship, some continued education if you will. So let's go back and let's think about these next verses, Sermon 3, through the context of the setting, the scene, and the sermonette. The setting, Jesus sat, and he sat down opposite the treasury. So they're in the court of the women, which is where the treasury was set up. The court of the women, as you'll recall, is the first place in the temple that is inside, inside the actual temple. Everything else is outside on the temple grounds in the temple precinct. So Jesus has has finished teaching the crowds what they need to know about the scribes and what the scribes are promising for salvation. And he moves into the treasury. And in the treasury, along the wall, there will be 13 receptacles set up for people to bring their offerings, for people to come and put their money in the plate, so to speak. And these 13 would be set up, and they look like trumpets. Don't think of the curly trumpets that loop around like ours. Think of the ram's horn trumpet, the long trumpet, the trumpet that starts with a mouthpiece, starts small, and then gets larger at the top. There were 13 of these trumpets where you could easily get something into the bloom, but you couldn't get out what was already down inside of it. Pretty smart. And these 13 trumpets were set up, and people who came for Passover would go by and put in offerings. Six of them were designated for different sacrifices, different sins, different things that you needed to deal with while at the temple. And seven of them were for free will offerings, just whatever you want to give because God has told you to give to the temple. If you go to the six where there's designated giving, you go to a priest and you say to them, I'm bringing this amount for this reason. The priest would check the amount, they would check the reason by law, and they would declare to everyone present what you're giving and why. But if you wanted to give to the free will offering, you would just go and put it in. Now, so that's the setting. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. Listen to the scene. Listen to Jesus watching. He began observing, this is literally in the New American Standard. I think this translation is fantastic. He began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. So first, the throngs, the people, the same people who were hearing Jesus gladly in 37, the throngs are throwing in nondescript amounts of money. It's not the word for put or place. It's actually the word for throw. I'll tell you why in a minute. And then if you pick up in verse uh, 41 at the end, You should read, and many rich put in large sums. Literally, many rich through much. Jesus is watching bags of coins. Remember, no checks, no paper money, no IOUs, no visas. Jesus is watching bags of money, bags of coins being thrown here, there, 
and everywhere. We know from the Mishnah, which is a Jewish commentary, that folks would sit around, watch the show, they would ooh and ah. So the Greek is subtle, but it makes an interesting point. It says when the, when the rich gave, they literally kept throwing, dragging it out, letting people watch and be impressed. And then this is the, the next thing Jesus sees. And A, or the word is for single, one single poor, beggarly widow came and put in two small coins, two small copper coins, which make a penny. This time when Mark writes what the widow does, the word throw is still there, but it's very simple Greek. It's quick and decisive and private. And literally, Mark says, she threw in two leptas, which amount to a quandress. And a lepta, the two coins she actually threw in were Jewish coins, They're the smallest coin in circulation in all of Palestine. In fact, in the New Testament, this is the only time a Jewish coin is even brought up. All other coinage, all other money in the New Testament is Roman money. And so Mark, who's writing to Gentiles in Rome, translates her gift into their coinage. So when he says, two lepta that amount to a quandrus, a quandrus is a Roman coin that's worth one sixty-fourth of a denarius. A denarius is what you'd make if you worked all day long. She put in one sixty-fourth of a denarius. And if the text stopped here, there would be nothing to notice, nothing to learn, nothing to repent for. The masses took time throwing in their nondescript amount. The crowd oohed and awed as the rich put in massive amounts. And nobody but Jesus notices the one poor widow who quickly put in two coins. And so then the sermonette he taught, pick back up in verse 43. He calls the disciples to him. They didn't notice. They didn't see. Now notice, we're going to come back to this in a minute. He doesn't call the scribes and he doesn't call the crowd. He only calls his disciples. Mark is telling us that for a reason. He calls the scribes to himself and he says, truly, I say to you, he gives it the prophetic introduction. He's like, this is going to shock you a little bit. You're not going to believe this, but I am telling you, it's literally the word amen. It's how we close off our prayers. Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And we, along with the disciples, say, what? From our perspective, The rich who put in much, a term of amount. The rich who put in much, put in more, a term of comparison, because so much could be done with what they gave. And Jesus is telling his disciples, there's a thing called the divine exchange rate. You know how when you take your U.S. dollars and travel to a foreign country and you have to exchange your money, there's a rate there where you give them a couple of these and they give you several hundred of these back. He's saying there's a divine exchange rate in play here. The term of comparison, more, is given to the smaller amount. And we say, how can this be? And Jesus says, I'll tell you, verse 44. For since because they, the common people and the rich, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. 
Jesus says the ones making all the noise are giving out of abundance. The one whose gift gripped the attention of heaven is giving out of poverty. You should know this, that the story most literally ends this way. The last four words are even her whole life. It's the word for bios. It's where we get biology. It is not all she had to live on, to quote Tim Keller, who said no translation had the guts to say what the Greek actually said. She put in her very life. This is what's most remarkable to me. She gave two coins. I've never noticed this. You know what she could have done? Put in half that she has and keep half for herself. There's a Chinese proverb that I've heard and seen in many settings that says, when you have only two pennies left in the world, buy a loaf of bread with one and a lily with the other. In other words, you use both pennies on yourself. (laughs) But the radical part is don't just allow yourself to be defined by your stomach. Realize that you're not just a body, you're also a soul. So buy something that's a materialistic uh, need and buy something that's a spiritual need. Do something creative and fun and soulful. Listen, folks, this is absolutely shocking. I don't want us to go buy it too fast because you know what? In a moment, we're going to apply this to us and we are the rich. I was listening this week to the radio. I want to think about how shocking this is. I listened to the radio this week and the Christian church-based radio station and the secular pagan-based radio station both gave this little bit Um, of news. And I want to be really careful. I am not judging anyone involved here. I'm just trying to give us a sense for how hard it is to believe what Jesus is saying when almost all of what he says in the gospel is the exact opposite of what our culture is telling us is true. Did you hear this this week? Dwight Howard gave a significant gift to the Florida hospital. Again, I am not judging any way. I'm not judging anyone. I don't know his heart. I don't know anything about it. I'm just trying to give you a sense for how it was presented to us through the radio waves. I was told that he gave a significant gift to the Florida hospital to the section that, um, that, that treats uh, teens. And then they, they told me, both of them set it up this way to tell me what the gift was. And, and it, they said, he gave 33. I was like, holy cow, he gave $33 million. This is amazing. $33,000. Now, again, I am not judging anyone. I want you to know that, but I just want to let you know that Jesus is saying there's a divine exchange rate, and the person that should be talked about on the radio and trumpeted about and brought into the feast and put in nice clothes and placed at the seat of honor is the old woman who volunteers every day for nothing. That's the one that's given more in the kingdom of heaven. This is quite convicting. I was a little more convicted by the teacher part before. My hope is that I've joined you in my misery on the giving part later. Braden went to the doctor this week to get five shots as a five-year-old, and they told him in advance this is going to be painful. This is no walk in the park here. I'll quote my friend, who I don't know, but I want you to be mad at him and not me, Tim Keller. When the rich give, let's be honest, when we give... We give out of our margin. We only give money. When we drop our offering in the plate, we don't dress any worse. We don't eat any less. We don't really go without anything. We don't travel any less because we just give money. We give a percentage. We give a part of the much, much more 
that we have. We don't actually give that much that we cut into our lives. We just give money. She gave her life. Jesus redefines sacrificial giving here. He says it's not how much you give, it's how much you keep. It's how much you have left over that determines the true value of the gift you gave. Now, let's go a little deeper. Let's just talk about what this does to our hearts. There's something about this widow that's incredibly exhilarating to me. I'll talk about that more in a second. But there's something about what this widow has done and what Jesus has called for in my life in response to his grace that is so scary. One word, control. You know why it's exhilarating? It's because I suck at being in control. But you know why it's scary? It's because I want to be in control. Why does this scare me? I mean, she takes her last discretionary cash and she gives up what little control she had left in life. When I give, I only give what I can afford, not what I can afford financially, what I can afford without losing control. Let's go back to the Chinese proverb, the ancient, and quote, wisdom of the world. When you have only two pennies left in the world, buy a loaf of bread with one and a lily with the other. This is what the proverb's telling us. When you got two pennies left, exercise all the control you can by not putting it all towards food. And this is what Jesus is saying. He says, when you get down to your last two pennies, or better yet, when you realize your two million is two pennies, put them both in the treasury. Jesus is saying this, declare that you're using your last perceived act of control to give up control. Now, I tell you, this is actually quite exhilarating for me. I mean, it is scary, don't get me wrong, but there's a part deep down inside of me that thinks this is absolutely beautiful and this is the life that I actually want to live if I could be totally honest with you. I was watching a movie by myself this Friday night. Trisha and the kids went to see her folks and um, I was watching Seven Pounds um, and I'm not gonna recommend that movie yet. I'm actually gonna watch it with Trish on Tuesday and think about it if I wanna recommend it. But for all the wrong reasons, because Will Smith's character is trying to atone for his sins, for all the wrong reasons, he's trying to give life to seven people because he killed seven people in negligent, negligent driving. You can read all that on the back of the CD. I didn't mess up the movie for you. But this is when something deep inside of me was touched. This is literally when I began to weep on my couch. Okay, so I'm being honest with you. Your pastor was in his pajamas. I had a blanket on me. I had a glass of red wine. And I had to pause the movie because I couldn't see it because I was crying so hard. (laughs) But I, I cried like a baby. For a couple of minutes, it was a really cleansing thing for me. But when I saw the abused, victimized mom walk into his house on the beach, realizing when she sat down at the table that he had deeded it to her and given it to her, while he is living in an old, nasty hotel, there was something deep down inside of me that said, when I die, I would like the gospel to have so radically transformed me that that's my story. But not through gritted teeth. That's the problem with the movie. He grits his teeth the entire movie. He's trying to earn his own atonement. But what if through freedom 
and joy and gratitude. I live so radically out of the atonement of Christ for me that that's my story. That's exhilarating. How do we get there? I mean, that's the question. How do we get there? I think I can guilt you guys into putting a few more dollars in the plate. Don't get me wrong. How do we get to that place with reckless abandonment, giving up control, we watch Jesus do something that amazing in our lives. Going further, how do we get to that place where the greed of the scribe that is in my heart and yours, how do we get to that place where what is inside of us is expelled, where we'll use others for our own life? Let's just zoom out for just a second. Let's look at the last three rounds of the heavyweight fight. Why is the story of the widow here? I've never really understood that. He's interacting with the scribes the whole time. He's interacting with the Sanhedrin the whole time. Why, why did Mark put it here? I think it's more than, well, the word widows in both of them, so they're connected. And I think it's more than contrasting greed with generosity, although I'm not trying to rob us of the application that we've already thought of. I, I do think this text is absolutely a call to humility to those of us who are rich, that the other people in the world living in poverty are giving much more than we are. And it's going to be really hard for us to remember that because the world is going to want to trumpet it and they're going to want to say it over the radio and they're going to want to put our names on, on bricks and on buildings and the world's going to put us up at nice banquets and tell us to wear nice things and sit us where everyone can see us. It's a call to humility. We're not given that much, just so you know. I, I think it's absolutely a call to sacrifice. I think there are places in every one of our lives. I don't think every one of us all the time are, are called to put our last two pennies in. I think there are times, though, where it might be energy. It might be time. It might be emotion. It might be gift. It might be relationships where God says, put it all in the plate now. And we look at it and we say, I feel so weak and I feel so out of energy and I don't have that much time and it's really not that much money. And he says, it is not much to you, but it is a bunch to me. And I can translate that into my kingdom in amazing ways. But more importantly, more importantly than the call to humility and the call to sacrifice, I think this is a call to faith. Remember, Jesus is teaching just his disciples. This is continued education. Since chapter eight, Jesus has been teaching the 12 about discipleship. Remember, the key verse in all of Mark for discipleship, if anyone, chapter eight, verses 34 and 35, would want to come after me, let them deny themselves, let them take up their cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But you have to remember before 34 and 35 came in chapter eight, 31 came, listen, it's the first of Jesus' three predictions of his death. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In his third prediction in chapter 10, he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I think Jesus is just telling his disciples, Psst. There's another picture of discipleship. Watch, watch what she does. See what she did there? That's someone responding to my death appropriately. That's why the scribes aren't there. That's why the crowds aren't there. He doesn't want the crowds to think, listen, the scribes are wrong for you. This is how you get in. You give everything you have. What's the next thing the, scribes will, the, the crowds will see? 
What is it? He's just broken down the scribes as an option for getting into eternal life. What's the next thing they will see? Chapter 13, he's gonna leave the temple, go into Bethany, not come back until he's on the cross. This widow is just a pointer to Jesus. She's just the model that looks to the one. Jesus is saying, do you wanna give up control to me? Look to that place where I lost control for you. Do you want the faith and the gumption to put in your last two pennies? Look at my life and how she proverbially, symbolically put in her life. I actually put in my life so that you could have life. Oh, man, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be fun to live out of that? We'll talk more about it in a second at communion. Where Jesus, I've been long-winded, Children's ministry volunteers have not been loved well. I'm sure my friends here have not been loved well. But I pray that you'd capture us so deeply by your glory and your beauty and your sacrifice. That we are freed from the slavery of control. In your name we pray.